And I will share my screen now so you can see that. Has that worked all right? Yes, that's great. Thank you very much. So as uh, Chris has already said, um, I will be talking about extraterritorial human rights obligations between a rock and a hard place today about diverging jurisprudence at the European Court of Human Rights and uh, UN treaty bodies in particular. Now, thank you very much for having me. I'm really thrilled to be here. Uh, the presentation today, my talk today, is um, about recent developments. So uh, the LH against France decision um, issued by the Committee on the Rights of the Child and uh, Georgia Russia number two at the European Court of Human Rights. But of course, what I say today is rooted in my thinking um, that I've been developing over uh, a number of years, um, including in uh, my book. So I'll make reference to that and to previous arguments as uh, is important or as I see important, uh, but I am mindful that not everyone here is working on these issues and I will try and make this um, interesting uh, for anyone, uh, whether you're new to this or you've been thinking about this before. Here we go. So we have a situation currently where we have expanding and contracting notions of extraterritorial jurisdiction going on. Um, and my talk will focus on how not to choose or how to choose or not to choose between these approaches. Now, uh, quick housekeeping in terms of definitions, extraterritorial human rights obligations are just those obligations of states, human rights obligations, that are owed to individuals outside their territory. That's it, fairly simple. And jurisdiction, um, extraterritorial or not, in these treaties, especially in, so in international human rights treaties, is um, used to denote not the jurisdiction of a court, but the jurisdiction of a state. And it is usually employed to say, this is the threshold situation in which a state must find itself in relation to a given individual for that um, individual to be within the jurisdiction of that state and then human rights obligations being imposed. So that's what it means. Um, I'm setting it up here um, as expansion contraction um, of uh, these uh, notions and what arguments are being used in order to expand and contract um, notions of extraterritoriality. Um, and then in the, um, in the next step, in a final step, we will say something about principled reasoning and what I think the role for principled reasoning in decisions like these should be. Now, at the UN, the trend has been and continues to be an expansion of extraterritorial human rights obligations. Um, an example of this is the famous uh, general comment number 36 on the right to life issued by the Human Rights Committee. But I will be focusing here on um, a recent decision by the Committee on the Rights of the Child um, that focused on uh, French children in Syrian refugee camps. This is particularly interesting because the same fact pattern will also come 
um, before the ECTHR later this year. So uh, we'll be able to directly compare and, con compare and contrast the different approaches here. The criteria, uh, and I will add detail to this as I go along, the criteria that the CRC, the Committee on the Rights of the Child, used to expand um, extraterritoriality are capacity, so states' capacity to do something, power to do something, sometimes it's also called capability to do something. And interestingly, this is relatively unsurprising, right? So especially if we're talking about developed states, they have a lot of capacity and that is um, a natural place almost to go to expand the notion of extraterritoriality. A little bit more surprising perhaps is the reliance on nationality. Um, this is usually associated with a contraction of uh, jurisdiction because it's perceived to be inward looking. So the way in which the, uh, the committee used it here to broaden the scope of the uh, Convention on the Rights of the Child is very interesting. And we'll show, we shall see why in a moment. Now, the European Court of Human Rights um, has been contracting its notion of jurisdiction, uh, particularly in its uh, latest judgment um, in Georgia against Russia, number two was uh, issued this year. And uh, here the court relied on the existence of hostilities, so an armed conflict with an actual battlefield and uh, use that to say that chaos, any context of chaos is not conducive for the um, application of human rights and that that's why um, a jurisdiction cannot be found to exist in such uh, situations. And this is both new and not so new. We'll see um, in a moment uh, a little bit a little bit more. Uh, there is also an interesting relationship here with uh, the um, concept of derogation, but I will leave it to Natasha to say more about that if we get there in the discussion. Um, but it's in any way, in any event, not unfamiliar. It's just been deployed in a new way, this kind of argument. Now, these both of these decisions that I will um, discuss in a little bit more detail in a moment have not been making um, their reasoning particularly explicit. So the Committee on the uh, Rights of the Child did not even say what test or model of jurisdiction it is relying on. It just had one paragraph in its decision that said, here are some relevant considerations. It didn't say anything about the weight or how these considerations relate, why they're important, nothing of the sort. Um, and DCHR said, oh, we're just applying an old test. This is nothing to see here, nothing new, when that's not entirely right. <laughs> we will also see um, how in a moment. And I think this kind of argument and this kind of not this, this tact is the strategy of not making explicit what the values and principles are that are at stake and why the facts are relevant is a problem. Now, facts do not say, why do I think this is a problem? Very briefly, facts do not make themselves relevant. Um, think, for example, um, of the right to vote. 
we think that the right to vote is what is a relevant consideration in saying who has the right to vote in a particular election is nationality, but the hair color of that person is not. These are both facts, the nationality of that person and the hair color, but one is relevant and the other is not. Why do we think that? It's because we think nationality says something about the connection to political community in a way that a person's hair color does not. Right Now you can disagree with that, you can say this is the wrong way of allocating rights to vote, but at least you know why. And the same is true for accounts of jurisdiction. Right? You cannot say that capacity or nationality is irrelevant without also having in your mind somewhere an idea of why you think this is relevant. But for that you need principles, you need an explanation, and these explanations in law come from principles. And uh, I will explain uh, a bit more as I go and also in the end why I think it's important to make this uh, explicit or as explicit as we can. And, but there is also a reverse implication of this. Um, namely, I want to just deal with the objection that I should not be looking at these decisions as if they were principled reasoning when they're not doing that. But you cannot say something about jurisdiction without knowing what account of jurisdiction you are employing. So even if you do um, just list considerations as the CRC did, you still have an account of jurisdiction. You may not know it or you may not make it explicit, but it's still there somewhere, at least implicitly. And so that's why it is both possible and important uh, to interrogate these decisions in this light. With this in mind, um, we'll go straight into it. Uh, the first decision I would like to discuss is, um, was issued by the uh, Com Committee on the Rights of the Child, the CRC, called LH against France. It's a procedural decision, so the merits have not been decided yet of this individual communication. Um, by way of factual background, it concerned uh, French children of French and non-French ISIL supporters held in a refugee in different refugee camps in northeastern Syria. The pictured here on the slide is um, the Al Hol camp, which is um, a terrible place to be. So all of these camps that are concerned here are awful. They are squalid. Um, there is no access to safe drinking water or food. Um, there are often incidents of violence. It's dangerous uh, to live there. Um, France knows this, but has done nothing. And relatives of French children, of ISIL supporters, their mothers mostly, held in these camps, have now asked France to either intervene on these children's behalf or to repatriate them or both, preferably because they say France's inaction violates the right to health, the right to life and development, the right to non-discrimination, and so on. Now, I would like to say, before I say anything about this decision, before I criticize this decision, that these camps, obviously, so this is, these are the children of Europeans who left Europe to join ISIL, right? And now ISIL has collapsed, but these camps still exist and these people are still there. And these camps are obviously a moral and political failure. 
So do I think it is a good idea to repatriate European children or actually just to make sure any child in those camps has a decent chance of life? Yes, of course I do. Do I think this decision applied the law as it stands particularly well? No. So I just want to make sure that we, we separate these two. Now, first of all, how, how did the CRC find that France has jurisdiction here when most of the case law about extraterritoriality is about controlling something or other, mostly people or territory? Uh, the committee goes and acknowledges right from the start, no, France does not have control either over these children or over the camps. Kurdish authorities have control. The Kurdish authorities know this, so this is not, it's not disputed, right? So what does the committee do? Instead of relying on control, it relies on um, capacity. So France's capacity in conjunction with the nationality, the French nationality of the children concerned. How does it do that? It asserts that France is in a position to assist these children. Um, it says it has the power and capability to assist. It seems to me all of these terms are being used interchangeably, so I'm not going to make a distinction either. Um, the problem, and the committee does not acknowledge this, but it is implied in how it goes uh, about it. The problem here is that this assertion that capacity is enough to find that a state has jurisdiction um, puts an important principle on its head. It says, namely, that can implies ought, so that you have to do something just because you can. Now, this is not the way we usually use to, um, uh, to allocate duties at all. But jurisdiction does exactly that, right? It allocates human rights duties. It says this state or that state, or even two states at once have human rights obligations. Um, but capacity alone does not, um, does not justify this, I don't think. Um, so it, it also doesn't say anything really. Um, so this is no way of, of allocating duties. It is true though, that capacity is often a byproduct of jurisdiction because the opposite of can implies ought is true. Ought implies can, so we're not in the business of allocating obligations that cannot be fulfilled, right? So it's true that capacity is relevant, just not in the way, in this normative justificatory way that the committee relies on it here. So this needs to be contextualized further, it needs to be said what kind of capacity is relevant and so on. And the committee does that with its list of other relevant considerations. And um, this is also why the committee doesn't say that, but I suspect this is why they rely on nationality, because the cap France's capacity um, to assist extends theoretically to everyone in those camps, right? Um, but the committee relies on nationality to then to, to buttress their case of expanding the extraterritorial ob obligations of France. Um, nationality, we want to be careful around uh, using nationality to establish jurisdiction 
because nationality laws are quite fickle, they differ wildly from state to state, they often disadvantage women. So it's often possible for, for, um, fem so for female spouses to acquire um, citizenship, but not for their husbands. And then some, in some countries, women cannot give the citizenship to their children, but men can and so on. So it's, it's bad for these sorts of reasons. So our human rights um, should not depend on our nationality simply because it's an arbitrary criterion and jurisdiction. I think at the very least, as a system of establishing human rights obligations should not be arbitrary. So nationality doesn't uh, do that. In fact, it's but it stands in as an, I think as a fairly transparent uh, way of trying to address a problem that needs burden sharing. But there are no principles in human rights law or in international law in general to, to take care of that. Um, so it supplements capacity, but it doesn't do so, do so in a principled way either, because it would have to say something about why France is particularly able to help French children. But again, the only thing that stops France from taking in Syrian and Lebanese children is France's law. It's not its capacity to do so, right? It could, it could at least try. So its nationality is grating here because it supplements capacity, but not even in the same spirit of capacity. Um, so I know in overall, I think um, the argumentation here in this decision is very messy. It's um, unprincipled, it is not very transparent. And in, I, I just think these are too many bullets to bite to expand extraterritoriality, even if we think expanding extraterritoriality is a good Right. So what then of the contraction of extraterritoriality? Here, I would like to discuss uh, Georgia against Russia. Number two, the judgment here uh, was handed down earlier this year. What you can see uh, pictured here is um, smoke over the city of Gori. Gori is very close to uh, South Ossetia, where the conflict, it's one of the two areas in which the conflict took place uh, that this case was about. Um, Georgia here, so this case is about the 2008 um, armed conflict between Georgia and Russia uh, in Abkhazia and South Ossetia. And Georgia claimed that Russia had violated, among others, Articles 2 and 3, so the right to life and the prohibition of torture um, by indiscriminately attacking civilians during those armed, um, uh, during those hostilities in a, on Georgian territory. So South Ossetia and Abkhazia, there are territorial disputes here, but the hostilities took place on what is generally regarded to be Georgian territory and certainly was then. Uh, but because this is about Russia's obligations, but all of the facts, so all of the hostilities take place on Georgian, Georgian territory, whether or not Russia has jurisdiction according to Article 1, the ECHR, so jurisdiction in the sense that I explained earlier on, is central to the case. Now, the 
court here divided its reasoning, its whole judgment, um, by reference to a distinction between active hostilities and Russia as an occupying power in the aftermath of those hostilities. Now, Russia as an occupying power in the aftermath of hostilities, there it just applied Alskeny, territorial model, occupying powers have control over territory, jurisdiction, Russia has violated these rights, like has jurisdiction, has obligations violated them. This is uh, unsurprising, and I also think actually fairly uncontroversial. Um, so I'm not going to focus on this. Rather, I want to focus on the court's arguments that concerned the very short four days, five days, I think, 8 to 12 August 2008, um, of active hostilities and what it said about jurisdiction, Russian jurisdiction on Georgian territory. Then these arguments are a bit new and are more complex as well. So the court found that shelling and bombing were like the case of Bankovic. Uh, Bankovic is a very early decision on exoterritoriality um, rendered in 2001. Uh, it concerned the bombing, the air bombing of a um, television station in Belgrade. And the court found then that Belgium did not have um, control over the area of Belgrade and so did not have jurisdiction. And what is interesting here is that the court explicitly denied, so in the new case, Georgia and Russia explicitly denied. So it said first explicitly, the, court, the facts here are like Bankovic. And then it said, accordingly, no spatial model, so no control over an area. But it, was, it also didn't find um, that the personal models of control, effective control over persons could be applicable. This is less convincing um, and it's uh, also new in a way. It's also different from Bankovic because when Bankovic was decided, the personal model didn't exist yet. At least in the court's case law, it didn't. Here, I would like to say something I would like to read out a sentence from the court's judgment and then analyze that um, further. So the very reality of armed conflict, the court says, armed confrontation and fighting between enemy military forces seeking to establish control over an area in a context of chaos means that there is no control over an area. So that's the argument about the spatial model. If you have protracted violence, this is a signifier of the absence of control, not its presence. And I think that's a good point. In fact, I argue exactly the same in my book. I say the battlefield is different from, from uh, occupation for precisely this reason. Protracted violence does not tell you that you're controlled. Why are you fighting if you have control? You're fighting because you don't, right? So I think this is a good point, but, um, and I also think actually the court has been employing this for a while. It has been, for example, distinguishing um, checkpoint cases like Jalud and Pizari from Bankovic, finding jurisdiction in Jalud, but not in Bankovic. And I think it's precisely for this reason, chaos, not chaos, protracted violence, single action of violence. So I've also been saying that for a while, but the court has not been saying it until now. Um, 
but it doesn't say more. It doesn't say why this context is, of chaos is important. Now, I have a theory. I think it's important because the battlefield and the chaos it brings with it creates particular epistemic conditions. It makes it impossible for states to guarantee human rights on the basis of equality because the facts and knowledge are not accessible to do that. Now, on my account of jurisdiction, these are very important factors because human rights law is about guaranteeing human rights equally. And if you can't do that, you cannot have jurisdiction. But the court didn't say that. The court didn't say epistemic conditions are important for X, Y, Z. They did, just didn't engage. Now, for the spatial model, that's not so bad because the argument is quite obviously a good and convincing one, I think. For the personal model, where we're talking about states having control over people um, or individuals, here, the court did not develop a new argument, it just repeated itself. It said the same again about chaos. But here, it's much less convincing because violence against an individual, even if protracted from an individual perspective, of course, looks like control. In fact, if you're being shot at, maybe killed, you're overcome by the ultimate control over your existence. So really what this says, I think, is that violence, just the fact of violence is neither here nor there for the purposes of jurisdiction. It's not, it can be in signifier both of the presence of control and the absence. Presence in isolated acts, absence in protracted violence. So this is why I think it's actually fine to distinguish different kinds and contexts of kinetic uses of force. Uh, for the purposes of extraterritoriality. But here, the epistemic conditions, so the point of about chaos and why this makes the state, so why this influences the state's position really fundamentally, and why this is really different from, say, a military exercise in the border areas in Pat versus Turkey, for example. Here, this needed more explanation, and the court didn't give us that. And um, I think that's, again, disappointing. I think if you are going to introduce, if you are the ECTHR and you're going to introduce a really fundamental, really big distinction, hostilities and battlefield and not, I think you need to give good reasons why you're doing that and why you think it's relevant. Um, now, this brings me to the last point um, of this talk namely the role of principled reasoning. Um, the outcomes, I don't think, of either in the CRC decision or in the ECTHR um, uh, judgment are the main problem. As I've just said, I'm really sympathetic to the outcome um, of Georgia, Russia. And for the CRC decision, I disagree. Like, I don't think this is how we apply jurisdiction. It's not what I argue in my book, but I can see why one would want to argue this, particularly if on, on an international law, in, in the area of international law, there are not so many ways of litigating these things, except for through international human rights law and defining jurisdiction, even by a stretch means that at least we can hear these cases, we can tell these stories, then maybe that's a good idea. 
right? So I can see where they're coming from. But the fact that, they're that the quality of the reasoning is again not very good is a problem. And I want to say why, and also what that might mean for how we deal with this divergent jurisprudence and how we think about it in three broad areas, um, normativity, authority, and context. So I think principled reasoning is important for normative reasons. Um, it is disrespectful not to give good reasons for your decision. It's disrespectful to the applicants and it's disrespectful to anyone who wants to use your decision to make a future application. And it's also, of course, these bodies can say, oh, but that's not the role of our documents. But it is how the documents are used and this should be respected. So this is uh, one reason why this is important. Um, it's also respectful to be transparent about the values and principles that we apply. And this is in addition to what I've explained in the beginning that <laughs> without principles, we cannot even say why particular facts are important, right? Now, authority is also important. Both the ECTHR, the court and the committee have authority. Now they have authority, they can create reasons for action on their subjects. They have that regardless of the outcomes of their decisions, but because international institutional contexts are a little bit, shall we say tricky, or a little bit more unstable than domestic ones, um, content dependent authority, so authority that depends on what is said and how it is said is more important here, I think, than it is for domestic courts. So, for example, the ECTHR in Georgia and Russia was very clearly interested in not having to decide cases like this. It didn't want to get involved for fear of backlash. And I get that, actually. I'm sympathetic. The problems are very real with cases like this. I really get that. But a better way of doing this, rather than just push the cases away as quickly as possible, is to argue really well and to explain really well why you think jurisdiction is not the way to go here, right? The same is true for, and for, so for the CRC, it's, this is also true, but in a different um, way. So the committee, as any UN treaty body, um, have, if um, anything, the opposite problem of the ECTHR. So the ECTHR is almost taken too seriously, but the UN treaty bodies are not taken seriously at all. But this is also something that can be mitigated by um, thinking about content-dependent authority. If you explain well, even if your reasoning is expansive, people might start taking you seriously, or at least you would deserve it more <laughs> than if you don't do it, right? So this is, uh, the authority point is, is, is important for both the ECTHR and the CRC, but for different reasons. Um, and this brings me to my last point, to the context. Now, the context of how decisions are made and by whom is important here, I think. The ECTHR um, issues binding judgments. They come with consequences. They come with compensation, if you lose. Um, and here, being expansive is dear for the court. It's difficult to do. UN treaty bodies are semi-judicial bodies 
um, their um, individual communications are supposed to be binding, but not really. And so it's much easier for these bodies, particularly in general comments, but also in individual communications to be expansive in their reading. And so it's in a way unsurprising that um, there is a divergence of jurisprudence here. And I want to raise the possibility that it may not even be the worst thing. So yes, getting it right about jurisdiction or getting it wrong, that's important, but it may not be the only point. It might be good to have different institutional settings to have these contestations. Might be a good idea to have this. Um, but in any case, even if we think this is a good idea, and even if we think there is space in international human rights law for expansive and contraction, contra for expansion and contraction of extraterritorial human rights obligations, um, that it would still be better, I think, and we could use much better use of this institutional diversity if there was principled reasoning. So that's the final point I wanted to make about this. Thank you uh, very much for your attention. Thank you so much, Leah, for that uh, brilliant presentation um, and really fascinating topic. Um, thank you also for uh, stopping your screen sharing. That's very helpful. Um